My name is Ben Kearns. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. Super delighted to be with you. I feel like after that good word from Will about God's love being a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, I'm, I'm done, Will. That's, that's a good word. It's true, though. <laughs> well, we are talking about love, love of food, love of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. It is the love week of Advent. Advent is the time in the Christian calendar where we anxiously anticipate this season, this waiting for Christ to come to reveal God's fullness to us and that we would be changed and transformed by him. And in this Advent season, we're going through the traditional Advent themes. We talked about hope last week, love this week, and then we'll talk about uh, joy and peace. And then it'll be Christmas Eve, just like that. Well, I'm so delighted when I found out that I got tapped to speak on love. I just thought this is in my wheelhouse. I mean, everyone knows I love love. And um, I, um, people often think that I'm like this cold-hearted, mean person, but no, I am a softie and I love it. And, um, but the bummer is I'm not very good at romance. Some of you I mean, might feel me that. I love, I love death deeply, but I have no romance. And so I thought the way I'm going to solve this problem is I'm going to start watching The Bachelor. I don't know if you're any Bachelor fans. Um, it's kind of gone off the rails. Maybe some of you think from the beginning, but there was a time when it was a glorious show. And I thought, you know, I'm going to show my wife how much I love her by participating in uh, The Bachelor and Monday Night Tradition, and we'd watch this show, and um, I'm going to learn all about romance and love. And it turned out all I learned was I know what to do if I'm ever in the situation where 20 supermodels need to take me to a fantasy suite. I'm like, done. I got that one on lockdown. But that did not help me on this adventure of love or the love with my wife. Because what, what I realized is I'm watching The Bachelor They talk about love. They always talk about the most exciting rose ceremony. There's always this anticipation that's so about love. But really, it's about this one person, whether it's the bachelor or bachelorette, right, being um, loved. Whoever makes them feel the best, whoever makes them feel the greatest. Because there's no way that you can figure out how to know another person and love another person. And so finally, I'm like, okay, I think I'm done with The Bachelor. I I got what I needed to know about romance, but not about love. And so I continue to be on this this path to figure out how to love my family well. And for a few years there, I thought I crushed it. Check out this family photo. I mean, does this not look like a loving family photo? I know. It's Christmas. This is our Christmas photo from last year. I mean, I love my wife. I love my kids. Look, we have a chicken. I mean, we are like this perfect family. And what I realize is there's different seasons where God's just generous to us. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, where, you know, you get these kind of reprieves, these little seasons where you feel like, gosh, man, me and God, we're crushing it. And God kind of lets us kind of move along. And then all of a sudden he kind of trips us up. He's like, all right, you've had your rest. Let's go to the next level. And um, these last couple of years, my kids have been getting older. God has used their age um, to reveal something horrible in me. And what I reveal, what God revealed to me is not that I love love, but that I love me. I don't love them. I love me. Because what I realized is when my wife is good to me, when my wife is kind to me, when my wife does the things that I want, oh, I love her. When my kids behave and they do the things that I want them to do, oh, I love them. But what's wild is my kids are now 15 and 12 and they're becoming their own people. And the truth is they've been their own people their whole time. It's only recently that God's revealed to me that they are their own people and they have their own passions, their own desires. And what I realized to my own horror is that I don't really love them. I love me. 
I love that they're a reflection of me. And God is inviting me in this new season of depth of recognizing, no, no, if I am called to love others, I need to love others the way that God loved me. And John 15, verse 13 says this, that greater love has no one than this, than to lay down their own lives for, their, for one's friends. That true love is not about me feeling good, not about me being empowered, not about me experiencing romance and kindness and obedience for my kids, right? That's not what love is. True love, biblical love, Christian love, is laying down our life for our friends. Mature Christian love is even going a step further, laying down your life for your enemies. I mean, that is like big time stuff. In this Advent season, as we're talking about God's love being revealed to us, well, if we want to reveal that love to a world, then we need to make sure we're talking about the same kind of love, the kind of love that God modeled to us on Christmas. So we're going to begin our time together in John chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, turn right there to John chapter 1. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, fourth gospel in a very um, English-sounding name, but that's okay. All right, here we go. John chapter one. It says this. This is the Christmas story. And the Christmas story, this is more of a theological telling of the Christmas story. So there's no shepherds and, and wise men and little cows and oh, singing away in a manger. But this is a theological take on what in the world happened at Christmas. John chapter one. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning and through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that had been made. In him was life and that, light, that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So all of this beautiful language, this beautiful poetry, talking about the Word, and what the, basically John is saying, this is what we're talking about. Jesus Christ is this person. Jesus Christ was God. Jesus Christ was the incarnation of God. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. He goes on to verse 9 and says this, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Any parent can recognize this, right? It, it's like when you do your laundry for your kid all day, every day. They just think these clean clothes appear. They had no idea what you have done uh, for their clothes. And in the same way, in a very, God had done this incredible thing, and humans were just so naturally selfish, naturally sinful, and we just think everything that we have and have done has been out of our own goodness, out of our own greatness. And so we just totally miss this. Right? So he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not even recognize him. And he came to, to which was his own, but even his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. For the word Jesus became flesh. He made his dwelling among, among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word of the Lord. You know, what's incredible about this is that God, in his infinite wisdom, longed to be in relationship with us. And for me, the way that I'm wired, I get, I, okay, that's great that God wants to be in relationship with me. And, and I kind of think, well, God is like a king and God says, go and do this thing. And I'm like, oh, I can do that. Like, if God tells me to go do something out of duty, I can totally go get my head around it. I mean, I want to, but I understand that. Or if I understand that God is like this holy, all-powerful, consuming fire, and as Christians, we're supposed to be in awe and worship. And, and I don't always do that, but I can at least get my head around that. But what's incredible is the way that God actually longs for us to be in relationship with him is that of a father and children, that God has invited us into his family. He says, yet to all who believe in him, 
He's given the right to be called children of God, daughters and sons of the God Most High. That is the relationship that God's invited us into. And so the deal is that God has adopted us into his family. And what I love about this picture that God has adopted us into his family, it says, not by a husband's will or passions, right? Because what happens is if you... For our story, which is not that dramatic, but there was a a season there where we tried to have kids and we couldn't have kids. And if you've ever been through a season like that or if you're still in that, it is a challenging and hard season. And I swear, I look around and I feel like every 16-year-old is pregnant. I'm like, how is this happening? Everyone is pregnant and we're not. And you just think, how does does this happen? Right? So there's this mystery to it and it feels like, oh, all that has to happen is just two people have sex and away you go. It doesn't matter why or how. If you just are excited about it, then there you go. That's one way of doing it. The other way is, man, well, now we, we, there's medicine and there's all sorts of, of medical ideas of how to do it. So we took all the romance out of the game and all of a sudden we're like taking our temperatures and we're counting the calendar, right? And we're figuring out the exact right time so that we can try to make a kid, which was super romantic and great. And, uh, but it was, those were things that we tried to do. We, we white knuckled, we figured out how we're going to make this happen. And some people do that whole process and still struggle having kids. But what I love about this idea about adoption is God's like, listen, it's not like that at all. God longs for you and me to be into his family. And it's not out of some accident. It's not out of some desire, uh, for, out of some strong will. It's not even for a desire to like make kids so that they'll mow the lawn for God one day. No, that's not at all. God longs to adopt kids into his family, to be precious daughters and sons, to be these unique creations that are going to be about the kingdom of God. I love this passage in 1 John chapter 3. It says this, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The, the idea that being God being our parent, God being our Heavenly Father, we being adopted in His family, it's out of His great love that the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And for anyone who's ever walked through this, this path of adoption, it's interesting because it takes so much more intention, so much more effort, so much more cost to have a baby to do it that way than the good old-fashioned way. And God modeled that, that God, the way that we're going to be adopted into God's family is that we needed to be adopted, and Jesus coming to earth was part of that price, was part of that cost. God laying down his life for himself, making a way for sinful and broken and rebellious humanity to make a way for us to have access to him. And what's interesting is, Kids who are being adopted have no idea about how much time, how much effort, and how much money it costs. Right? I imagine if, if kids who are in orphanages or in foster care, and they're, they're in the process of being adopted, and they have no idea that parents went through classes or are paying thousands and thousands of dollars. Right? They're just a kid. And all of a sudden, a family says, you are now my kid. And as they grow and mature, they recognize all of the complexities and efforts and costs that it went through. In the same way that God, he, he gently invites us into his family. And very few people right out of the gate understand all that it took for God to do that. And what's interesting, around the church, for some reason, there's this, there's this rhythm, or some people have this story, where they were so scared that they were going to burn in hell because they are such awful, mean people and that Jesus had to suffer and die on the cross in order for them to be saved. And if you don't want to go to hell, then you better believe in Jesus. And there's this like this terror and soft-hearted people like my wife are like, I don't want that. And so they, they find Christ, right? But what's interesting is that's never actually how it works. Like there's some theology around all that. There's some theology, like just like parents paying thousands of dollars for adoption. There's like some complex theology around that that I think is important for us to wrestle with as Christians. 
But for followers of God, people being adopted into God's family, it never begins that way. I think of your own story. At what point did you start to become warm-hearted towards God? And what's interesting, most people I've talked to, this idea of being warm-hearted towards God is this really gentle, tiny first step. Doesn't matter if you grew up in the church, doesn't matter if you, if you grew up out of the church, somehow, somewhere along the way, there was this like small, gentle invitation to know God. And that's really God's posture. God, out of his lavish love, has been inviting you to be adopted into his family. He's done all the classes, he's paid all the prices, and now he's just waiting for you to say, yes, I want to be adopted in. It's funny because I think of my own story and I didn't grow up in the church and I'm often really surprised that I became a Christian, super surprised that I ended up being a pastor. Um, but I look at my own family line. My dad and stepmom um, are Jewish and my dad for sure is an atheist and he hates organized religion. And my mom uh, was, grew up Catholic and uh, married a kind of an all-American guy. So they kind of did church on Christmas and Easter. And that was kind of my life. I just lived in Novato, normal, just like many of you. And um, one summer, my parents sent me off to Christian camp, to church camp. And it's funny, looking back, I thought I wasn't quite sure why they did that. But now as an adult with, with teenage kids, I'm like, oh, I love sending my kids to winter camp. I'm like, a weekend away with my kids. This is awesome. And so that's probably what they did. They, they're like, they just sent me off to camp. But in that weird thing, whatever their motivation was, here I am, this third grader showing up at camp, and God, in his most gentle and generous way, kind of whispered in my ear, and invited me to take a step towards him. And like, this is like the 45-year-old version of Ben looking back on that line. I mean, that's not how it looked, right? It was just, I was just a fourth grader, a third or fourth grader, who just had a warm heart towards God. When the speaker did his little camp talk and they did their silly songs, I found myself talking to my counselor afterwards, like genuinely wanting to know more about this God that I didn't know anything about. And it's not like all of a sudden I became this super Christian and I was ready to like take over the world for Jesus. I was just a third grader growing up in a non-religious family and in fourth grade and fifth grade and 10th grade. And I look back and God graciously invited me deeper and deeper into a relationship with him, deeper and deeper to understanding his love and his grace until I decided to give my entire life over to him. And as I've been giving my life over and over to him, right, there's different theological things I need to wrestle with. There's different things I get to understand but it all begins with this gentle invitation to be adopted into God's family. Okay, so that's the good news. Here's the hard news, is that we, um, I think, are harder to love than we think. Because when we think that we are being adopted into the, God's family, we imagine ourselves as these beautiful, precious little babies who God just swoops up and away we go. But I think this idea of being adopted into God's family is a little more complex than, than that story. I think of the idea of being adopted into God's family as more like foster care or foster adoption. These are kids in the, in a, in the foster system, um, and they range in ages and range in backgrounds. And, uh, and what I think is interesting is, if you are going to be a foster parent, if you're going to do foster adoption, you have a whole different perspective on raising kids, on being a parent. Like, I think those people are like the Navy SEALs of God's love. Most people want to be um, parents because you want to have kids that look like you, who are going to be like you, and make more money than you so they can pay for you in retirement. These are my issues, not yours. But we have these kind of selfish things that we put on our kids. But people who do foster adoption, they know that they are getting people who have been abandoned by parents, abandoned by the system, and they are willing to make space in their life, in their family, for kids, and they have no idea about their background. 
And what I love about foster parents and foster um, people who do foster care and foster adoption is they go in with their eyes open. They don't just show up and say, you, kid, like in the blind side, come with me and you're going to be a great athlete one day. No, they take classes and classes and classes. They take additional care and and, and even um, they just have to keep learning and keep growing because the idea is these kids that are being invited into their family come from all sorts of crazy backgrounds, backgrounds that most of us could not even understand or get her head around. And what I love is almost, um, for sure, foster care um, and foster adoption families do this. Almost every educator and administrator is doing this. Many more people in the church are now doing this and are recognizing that we need to become trauma-informed people. That means that there are people, um, instead of just doing behavior management, which is, hey, you're not behaving well, so I need to be stronger. I need to put more discipline on you. Is to recognize that there's probably something deeper happening in the life of that person. And for people in the foster care system, they know that for sure that's because they're, they've been traumatized as kids. There's this thing called um, Adverse Childhood Experiences, ACE for short, and uh, it's a test that you can take. And we took it as a staff. And basically, there's 10 questions. And of those 10 questions, it's, it's ranging from these different experiences that, that, that say if you've experienced these before you turn 18. And it's things from abandonment and abuse, physical abuse and sexual abuse, um, incarceration. I mean, just the range of just all of the type of brokenness that you could imagine and, and if that experiences. And then what happens is if you score a certain number, like any one of those would for sure derail you. But at some point, they, the scientists have found if you just score even a four on that test, your actual physiology changes, your brain paths actually change, and you actually engage the world fundamentally different than if you've never had those experiences. And foster parents know that and are trained in that and are ready to get their head and mind around that so they can open their heart and open their care for those kids. Gosh, and I think the truth is, you and myself, and I know you look so beautiful on this Sunday morning, even you, Ryan, with your haircut, so glad, right? We look so beautiful. But the truth is, we have all been traumatized. We all have skeletons in our closet. We have have had things that have happened to us that have crushed us, destroyed us, have set us on different paths. If we're truly honest, we've actually been the people that have caused that kind of harm and pain into other people's lives as well, right? So we are in this total mire situation. And this is what I love in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, says this, that when God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What I love is that that God didn't wait for everyone to get better. He didn't like, oh man, you guys need to do, follow my rules. And when you've finally done all my rules, done all my things great, then I'm going to come and save you. And instead, what he did, he said, while you were sinners, while you were out there causing death and destruction, while you were having death and destruction happen to you, while you were just reacting to all of the things in your world and just going crazy, at that moment, Jesus enters the scene on Christmas in the incarnation. The word becomes flesh, comes to his creation, and makes a way for all this sin and all this brokenness to be taken care of. The life and the death and the resurrection is God's means to adopt us into his family, to give us the Holy Spirit, to begin to work through all of this trauma that has been uh, resonating in us and through us. And so this idea that God loves us, which is great, and that God wants to adopt us into his family, which is really great. But I think it'd be better for us personally and as the church if we can embrace this idea that we don't just want to be adopted into the family, that we want to be about foster care, foster adoption, that we are people who love other people where they're at, 
because of what Christ has done for us. The idea is that we now get to express God's love to the world. God has done all this work in us. God has saved us. God has adopted us. God has taken us, no matter our baggage, our background, all the awful things that have happened to us and we've done to other people, and we now get to be a part of God's family and God's redemptive work. One of my most favorite things is, uh, is that Amanda Milhan, she's on our staff, she's a foster parent, and she's going through this process, and we as a staff get to kind of this front row seat of like, oh, this is what it's like. And we get to watch her go to classes and we get to love the kids that, that she has been called to love. And it is this incredible thing to make space around the staff table for these kids. It's so fun. Sometimes I don't do a good job, huh, Amanda? I'm like, get that kid out of here. We have business to do. But I'm growing, you know, I'm growing as a person. And people like Amanda are discipling me and teaching me of making space around the table. And that's exactly what we need to be doing as a church. We have to be making sure that there is space around the table. And now you're probably more whole than I am, but when I think of that question, do I make space around the table for other people? I say, of course I do. But what I really mean is I make space for my one or two friends that I've been praying for that I really like, and how fun would it be if they became Christians? And if they ever wanted to come to church, I have all the space around the table for them. But I don't think it works that way. The truth is that there are spiritually hungry people. There are people in your life and in your world that God is inviting you to love and to be generous around. And what's interesting, when I say to love and to be generous, I'm not saying so that you feel good about yourself. I'm saying in a Jesus-centered way to give up your life, to give up your status, to give up your power. Every single person in this room has some sphere of influence and power. We all want more, but if you're honest, you have some place in your life where you have real power, you have real authority, you have real influence. And maybe this Christmas season, Jesus is inviting you to make some space in your heart and in your life to give up some of your power, some of your status, to make space for somebody else around your life. That is a hard thing, whether it's in high school, whether it's in your office, whether it's in your family. But wouldn't that be incredible if Christians could get their head around that, if Christians lived in such a way that we had an open table mindset for everyone we're around, Right? We're not always like guarding, we're not protecting, we're not living in scarcity, but we're making space for anyone and everyone to do that. So you and your place, starting 24 hours from now, you are going to be somewhere, and maybe God is inviting you to extend the love that you've experienced from God to someone that you're going to bump into tomorrow. Now as a church, I think God's inviting us to do that as well that we have plenty of open seats and we would love, isn't that great? Anyone can come and be a part of our church and sit in any of these open seats. But I think what God might be inviting us to is not just to come and fill up a seat so we feel good about ourselves, but could we actually be a church that would allow space for anybody on their spiritual journey to come and be a part of our church family? Like we think that's a simple ask, but you know the wackadoos that you live with. I know you, you know me. Like we know that what we say and if we can really get there is two different things. But what if God was genuinely inviting us as a church to make space for any spiritually hungry person? Anyone who has a heart to want to understand who Christ is. And we go, man, come and sit around the table. And I love this picture because if you've ever been around a table and had good food and good wine, like it is a game changer. So we're not saying sit around and have, you know, sandwiches and set her home. Like that's not, you do not do that. That is not how you entertain. You have good wine. Like good wine changes everything, right? When you, when you, 
This happens all the time. Unfortunately, my wife is way more generous than me. But people come over and we go, which wine do we serve these people, right? And it's kind of ranked out. And sometimes we go, oh, they're this, they're their C plus wine. I don't even know the names of it. But we, no, I do. You don't. Katie's like, it's Monday. Let's do Ramsgate. And I'm like, no, I know. And so for me, I think that I want to be generous with the best that I have to whoever comes. And I think we have to do that as a church. And it's easy to be stingy. It is costly because God is genuinely alive, genuinely doing something really incredible in Marin County. Like he's genuinely doing something. But a lot of people in Marin don't want to become church people. I mean, I don't know why. We're so great, but they don't want to become church people. And yet if we as a church can be generous and open-hearted towards them, wouldn't that be incredible? Because I think people, if they get to come to our church, if they get to be around you and encounter you and be with you as you journey towards Christ, they're going to get a, a clear understanding of what it means to journey towards Christ. But it is a costly endeavor, but one I think God might be inviting us into. All right, and the last thing, this is more of a narrow thing. Um, this is a thing that God's been, been revealing in me and wrestling with me, but I thought I would share it for, for those of you that this might resonate with. For you as parents, for me as a parent, is a whole different discipline to extend God's love to our kids. We actually have unlimited power when it comes to our kids. I know it doesn't feel that way, and I know my son would, my son would agree with me, right, that we can crush our kids in an instant. And our kids are punks to us, and so we have this weird emotional thing with them, and so we cut them off, and we get in a fight, and we have these things that happen that have happened forever and ever in every generation. But the thing that is wild is parents have this incredible power. I think it's a God-given power that we've somehow broken. But even my dad, who's a little dysfunctional, right, if he called me today and said, hey, meet me here for dinner, I'd be like, okay, I'm there. Like, I'm going to make a way to be with him. And we as parents need to leverage our power to love our kids and not to love our kids so that they become a better version of ourselves. We love our kids because we're stewards of them. We're stewards of who God has formed them to be, who's making them to be. And whatever they choose to do, whoever they choose to be, it is not on us to be stingy with our love towards them, like we're teaching them some sort of lesson. We are called by God to extend God's love to our kids in all of their chaos and all of their growing and, and learning and rebellion, all of it. We do that because God does that to us. So God has revealed himself to us in this idea that he loves us. He's fascinated with us. He's invited us into God, his family. He is the ultimate adoptive parent. And we are trauma-informed people. Man, we have been broken and we're, broken, we're breaking one another. And Jesus still loves us and is healing us and transforming us. And as God does all that work in us, even more so we have to extend that love to one another, to the world, to people who come to our church, to our own families. And we're going to do one last thing. Um, in a minute, I'm going to invite the Advent candle. I'm going to invite you to stand. But we're going to do one last thing, and that's this, that we don't white-knuckle love. All of these Advent things of hope and love and peace and joy, we don't try hard. It's not about being a really good person. And if you can just try harder, you are going to finally know how to love people better. That's not how it works. Christian formation works by you being connected to Christ. John 15, 5, that Jesus is the vine, we are the branches, we're connected to him. And as we connect to him, the Holy Spirit moves through us, 
shapes us, changes us, transforms us, and then we begin to bear fruit. And so what we're going to do is actually we're going to be in that process because I can't control what happens um, in 24 hours from now. I, can't ha- no, I don't know what's going to happen around your dinner table. I don't know those things. But for this time, for the last little bit of our time in worship, we're actually going to join with the angels. For the angels know who God's character is fully and they worship him and they love him and they just ooze praise and adoration towards him. And we are going to wrap up our time by extending our love and our adoration back towards God through worship. And I'm going to put my cards on the table. I'm not a big music guy. I'm not a big worship music guy. And uh, for a lot of time, I felt pride in being like, it's just not my thing. But the truth is, the church forever and ever has said that coming together in the corporate body of Christ, praying together, worshiping together, studying together are the things that Christians do to grow in our walk with God and do the discipline so that we are in the habit of extending worship back to Him. And so I'm going to invite you to stand And as we gather and as we worship and as we sing these traditional Christmas songs, that these words would not just be words, but we would just take an added step in. We would recognize all of God's love towards us and how right it is to give that love back to him and that he would mold us and shape us so that we can love others. And so just like we did last week, as we move around the Advent candles, more and more light is coming into a dark world. First through hope and then through love. God's love revealed through the person of Jesus Christ on Christmas, experienced by us as we are adopted into his family and is our turn and our joy to return that love back to him through prayer and worship and our actions. Let's worship together.